Guess what, cinephiles? I've just heard something absolutely mind-blowing. Okay, so you know when you search for something on Netflix, what you get is only a tiny fraction of what Netflix actually has. Netflix actually has more than 18,000 titles globally, but only like 6,000 of those are available in the U.S., so you're missing out on literally thousands of great shows, unless you use ExpressVPN. Yeah, Steve, ExpressVPN is an app that lets you change your online location. So like, for example, if you're looking for stuff that's from another country, you're based here in the United States, you actually change your online location to Australia or the UK so you can control where you want Netflix to think you're located. They have over 100 different locations. They're on ExpressVPN. So you can, you can gain access to like thousands of of new shows no matter where you live. And this works with many other streaming services too there. You guys have Disney Plus or Hulu or Max or the BBC iPlayer, which is the one I use. I know I've used ExpressVPN to connect to Australia because I really love this show called Have You Been Paying Attention? I just put myself in Melbourne and I get access to it. You sign up using your email, but you immediately get access to the stuff. I've used the BBC iPlayer to watch a number of shows there on the BBC like Law & Order UK and others. And sometimes this show Guilty that I love that uh, screens there, when the new seasons pop up, because it takes like four months to get them on PBS, I watch them there using ExpressVPN. And it's incredible how easy it is and how simple it is to use. So why should you use ExpressVPN? Well, first of all, it is super fast. That means you can stream everything in HD with no buffering. It works on any device. So I'm an Apple guy, which means I've already installed it on my Mac, on my iPhone, on my iPad, and on my Apple TV. I'd install it on my Apple Watch if I could, and it encrypts your data. Now, this is hugely important because it protects your privacy and your security to keep you safe from hackers. So stop missing out on great TV and get thousands of new shows with ExpressVPN. We got them to give you guys three extra months of free use when you use our special link, expressvpn.com slash cinephiles. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash C-I-N-E-F-I-L-E-S to get three extra months completely free. And if I can die having brought any light having exposed any meaningful truth that will help destroy this disease, then all the credit is due to Allah, the Lord of all the worlds, and only the mistakes have been mine. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where this week we are, I swear, concluding our exploration of the great film Malcolm X. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roca. I'm a writer, producer, host, film critic here in San Diego, California for the Outlaw Nation. And um, I am coming to you live, at least we're recording this, uh, in Las Vegas from my hotel room on the second day of cinema, third day of CinemaCon. Uh, and taking some time out to record at least part of this last part of Malcolm X <laughs> with my brother Steve Morris and our guest again, Steve, writer, yes. director, actor, all around race historian and a big fan of movies and a guy who has directed me, uh, who has uh, helped to manage me uh, and has been a friend for over two decades now. Uh, and I'm so happy how much the fans are enjoying him on our show over the last three episodes or last few episodes. The great Andre Gordon. Andre. Well, I just bought Twitter back from you. Oh. 
Nice. Nice. What do you do with this show if you got 44 billion roaming around? (laughs) That's how much Um, I love you guys. Well, and it's funny, we were just talking off mic, and what I what I think has been so great about all these episodes is here we have three people with totally different backgrounds. We have a a white guy, an African American guy, Latino guy, having really honest, friendly, non-confrontational conversations about what is normally an exceptionally difficult topic. And I just want to say that I really feel lucky that I have you two to talk to about this. You're very welcome. Yes. You're Andre, it's, it's an it's an audio podcast, so nobody can see that. <laughs> yeah, I just, I just put up the fist, guys. <laughs> I put up the fist. That offends Any me. means necessary, we will have this conversation. <laughs> Any means necessary. Yes. <laughs> so, shall we jump back into the world of Malcolm X? Let's do it. You say jump, I say hi. No, no, so, no. No. <laughs> so, when we left off... Uh, we really shouldn't be laughing this much yeah, talking about this is a right. serious You're movie. Right. You're right. Um, but and it's in fact a really serious moment because where we left off, Malcolm had just found out about the affairs that Elijah Muhammad had. He'd seen how much money Baines and the rest of them were making, and then he made his very unfortunate comments about the assassination of John F. Kennedy. He was censored by the Nation of Islam, and this is the moment of transition. And what where we go to is Betty with the three children. The phone rings. She's obviously nervous. She picks it up and says, Who's putting you up to this? Children here. Stop it. And we actually learn two pieces of information because A, we know she's getting threatening phone calls. And B, there's a very, very fast cut to a tape recorder. And we know that her line is being bugged. Hey, yeah. And listen, I mean, what you see in this in this scene also is what happens in any organization, religious or otherwise, when it is beholden to one man or one person. Uh, you know, there's a great documentary on HBO right now, The Way Down, about a female head of a of a religious organization, and they turned it into a bit of a cult thing. You see this this that if you attack the person in charge, because you're starting to see cracks in the firmament. Everyone else will come after you and will serve the person in charge and do some pretty terrible things because they think they are protecting something more precious than you. And also people have a horrible time admitting they were wrong or admitting that they spent years following someone who was uh, not perfect. And that you see coming out in these ugly moments where Betty is getting these calls, Malcolm is getting these calls. And it becomes this pattern of harassment from the Nation of Islam towards um, Malcolm X. And that's what's so horrible and sad about the whole situation is because on its face, the group's aim is to do well, uplift, raise, yes. enlighten. And and in the moments of, of adversity, uh, perceived adversity within, it's, it's interesting how certain people within the group turned from the principles, the founding principles of the nation to the complete diametric opposite of what they're supposed to stand for. And I think what's really sad about that is that it gives the people who did not feel that way or who, or who don't turn from their founding principles, especially in the nation of Islam at that time, a really bad name, a bad look. And there's that, uh, there's opposing uh, forces that were at play uh, as we hear later about Malcolm X 
maybe speaking for his own self as opposed to just being representative of the nation. There are two things going on that I think are just things to be very wary of. The first is if you're with other humans who are on a spiritual journey and you're all figuring it out and you all are trying to grow and learn, great. If you're following one human who is supposed to be perfect, who is divine, now we get in because then there's not any negotiation. There's no negotiation with what the divine person says. That's just it. And any contradiction of that is heretical. And and if you have and if the belief system is structured in that way where things are have to be a certain way that there is only one interpretation of this holy doctrine, then anything else is heretical. And so then it then all bets are off. And this is why, you know, you wonder why I'm distrustful, of, not of people who are religious, but of organized religion and anyone who goes, I know the absolute truth. That's where we get into real dangerous situations for me. Yeah, I'm distrustful of anything with a cult of personality. That's a fair yeah. point, Steve, you make it, as well. It, yeah, like, I mean, Outlaw Nation is just a, is a perfect no, no. example. I always <laughs> make sure that's inclusive and everybody gets an opinion. You do. And, you know, yeah. Well, I tried and, to and, well, and, 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 and uh, of course, I was making a joke, but yeah, actually, yeah. one of the things you do is that you're never saying I'm perfect. I have all the answers. Nope. That's part you've you've expressed your vulnerability. That's part of what's so great about what you do, you know? Yeah. Well, part of what I should do, though, is never express it because apparently that's the people they people really want to follow. But no, nope, I got to be honest to myself. So, you know, well, this is I mean, this is the thing there are, you know, yeah. people the the expressing complicated, nuanced ideas is not generally the way to get billions of people to follow you. That's yeah, true. You know, Brother minister, I have to level with you. They gave me a mission, but I couldn't do it. Is that Ernest Thomas? Yes. Yeah, I think so. Wow. What kind of mission? To wire your car so it would explode. You turn the ignition. So he was just told by the Nation of Islam to murder Malcolm X. Well, and here's the two things about this. One, that's Baines' son. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. Two, the actor here, Steve, if you remember, it's Roger from What's Happening. That is Roger Mm. from What's Happening. And he is a very good friend of my family. I I forgot that he was in this movie. That's why I was like, is that Ernest Thomas? You know, we we were very tight. Actually, I just messaged him last week. Uh, two weeks did ago. you really? You should I get did. him on the show. He's so I good. I'm going to ask him right now. Him I could ask right now. Hold on. That's what I'm saying. Oh, Ernest, what's your thoughts on working with the E.T.? We call him E.T. The ministers say that you're the greatest hypocrite, a, a, a Judas, a Benedict Arnold. The ministers say that your tongue should be cut out and delivered to Mr. Muhammad's doorstep. And what do you say? with you brother minister it's funny because i didn't get when because the next thing malcolm says is brother i can't come between you and your father you're my father going on i thought he was referring to symbolically elijah muhammad being his father but you're saying it's actually talking about baines as his actual father yeah because every time he's in a scene baines is there almost uh, except for Uh, this scene at the dinner scene remember he's there with with uh, baines and him so that is his son. And and I think it's a little bit... Now, look, nobody quote me on this because I can make things... I, as Steve said, I'm very good at saying <laughs> but I'm wrong about stuff. But I think if I remember from the studying I did of Malcolm back when I was very, very obsessed with Malcolm X years ago, that this is to symbolize when Elijah Muhammad's... One of Elijah Muhammad's sons sided with Malcolm against his father. And this is kind of a, kind of a thing here, if I remember correctly, so... 
The, um, I think yeah. so. I, there is definitely talk about his eldest son in the autobiography, but yeah. I think in the end that he didn't side with Malcolm. And by the way, one of the things that's going on that isn't in this movie at all is yeah. the relationship with Cassius Clay becoming Muhammad yes. Ali. Yeah, pretty because, funny that they kept that out. Really interesting. Yeah, because yeah. that's it's definitely in the book. Him talking yes, about this, of course. Um, and what what Malcolm says about it, by the way, obviously Malcolm X was huge, very very close to Cassius Clay, and you know we have this whole movie of One Night in Miami now showing some of that relationship. Is what he says is he never wanted to be come between Muhammad Ali and his religion, and so he was like, I politely stayed away to allow to not interfere with that. Yeah. Um, well, if if in fact this guy is Baines's son. Him saying to Malcolm X, You're my father. Going home. Don't come back. That's an order. That is 10 times more powerful mm, true, than what I thought it was. Wow. And then we hear the split, which is Malcolm holds a press conference. And by the way, Ernest Dickerson, it was his idea to shoot a bunch of 16 millimeter black and white film, different kinds of film stock, so that he could intercut with the color footage and with the kind of period press conference footage. So smart. Internal differences within the nation of Islam have forced me out of it. It's interesting to me that we never see him make that decision. Do you know what I mean? Mm, mm. We see the aftermath of him making that decision. In the past, I thought the thoughts and I spoke the words of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. If you recall everything I said, I started off with the Honorable Elijah Muhammad teaches us thus and so. That day is over. From now on, I speak my own words and I think my own thoughts. <laughs> How long has he been thinking his own thoughts and not speaking them? I would say as soon as he started interviewing the young women. And I think once he listened to Betty and started interviewing them, that's when it started to shake for him, you know, and certainly a guy with that much power investigating this when he's that committed to something, when he starts to see the cracks, he's that committed into expo to exposing the truth, you know? And so I think for him, that, that's when it first started happening. I think, I think it's a process, I guess, is the way I would think mm. of it, is that because I don't think that Elijah Muhammad would have come up with, we've been bamboozled, like that whole speech. Because mm. that, yeah, right. that's not how Elijah Muhammad speaks. That's how Malcolm mm. X speaks. Right. And so if you're coming up with those words, he was already thinking his own thoughts. But he merely, but he thought of them as colloquial translations of the teachings he was learning but then I think there's that little voice in your head, and I think it was getting louder and louder because he had heard the rumors even before that guy confronted him, before the fight. So I think it was a growing separation, if that makes sense. That's what I would think. I'm not out to fight other Negro leaders. As of this minute, I have forgotten every bad thing that other leaders have said about me, and I pray that they also forget the many bad things that I have said about them. I think that is an excellent apology and as the white guy watching this there was like a sigh of relief for me you know what i mean like oh good thank god i, I felt like he was just tying up all his affairs before he mm -hmm. was like he knew my time is limited so let me just make as much peace as i can yeah that makes sense and he says that he's establishing another mosque the muslim mosque incorporated will remain wide open for ideas and financial aid from all quarters Whites can help us, but they can't join us. There can be no black-white unity until there's first some black unity. It's amazing how much he changes in this speech. Yeah. Andre, what do you think of that statement? I think 
knowing yourself and having a clear sense of identity and purpose and really being able to know what you stand for and know who you are, I think is part one of really, we talk about enlightenment. I think that that is a, a step to enlightenment. Um, you know, I, I've said off off the air, and I'll, and I'll say it here. I don't believe that thought should be relegated to your race or your gender. I don't think all blacks are, are supposed to believe the certain thing. I don't think all women should have to think the certain way. I don't think any gender or race should have to vote the certain way based on their color or like certain foods based on a certain color. And I think what he's saying here is, Oh wait, there is an individual in me, and it's okay. I'm allowed to find that. Yeah, yeah. I also think he's. If I can jump in, I also think he's speaking about something that is that happens within communities of color. And I can only, obviously, um, viscerally speak about it from the Latino point of view. And that is that um, what what a lot of us have seen is that the white majority or the uh, white controlled uh, countries they purposely try to set minorities against each other mm. so that we keep fighting each other until, so that they remain in power. They also try to sow discord within communities of color. And there's a lot of jealousy sometimes with communities of color. Chris Rock's talked about it. Other people have talked about it. I think what Malcolm is saying here is the same thing, is this idea of like, we can't look to unify with white people and have a equality here if we can't even respect and love each other in our own community, how can we possibly seek to get it from another community? And I think that's really powerful. And I think a lot of people will tell you, and maybe Andres had this experience, sometimes the people who come at you the hardest are people from your own community of color and who are jealous or right. who are envious or who say the meanest things are from your own community of color. In my small experience in the Schmodown, a lot of Latin, uh, I experienced the most, the most, aggressive anger towards me or the negative things that were said were mostly from Latino fans, which really shocked me. And it's wow. what you see. And, and on the heels of that, Stephen A. Smith last night, making these comments about Kevin Durant and Ben Simmons, people are calling them out today. A lot of black entertainers or black celebrities are calling out Stephen A that, Hey, why do you give Aaron Rodgers a pass? Why do you give um, uh, a Tom Brady a pass, but you come hard at black athletes? Why is hmm. that calling him out for calling out his own people in such harder terms than he calls out white athletes. And that's something that's there within our communities. John, just to piggyback on what you said, some of the mm. most harsh, well, I'll, I'll explain harsh in a minute, but some of the most direct things that have been said to me have been from black people who may feel as though I, I'm either a sellout or, mm. uh, you know, I, I married a, a white girl or, you know, I don't yeah. dress a certain way. And I, I've definitely been pinpointed because of it. But I, I think I may have actually sent this to you guys. I feel as though words for me. Yeah. Uh, it was Selma Hayek who was saying, if, if I'm insulting you in a language that you don't even know, you're looking at me like I'm crazy. It has no meaning, no power. I've learned that those words really only affect me if I give them the power to do so. Yeah, but I, true. but I, I believe that not everyone is in that space. So yeah. the, the thought process of what he's saying of bringing people together, bringing the community together, I really see the community as all the community. 
Because so again, let, let, let's talk about this. This is an important conversation, right? When he says like, "Oh, let's bring the community together." Which community do I tell my daughters and son to try and bond with? I don't think it should be. Let's get this community together. Let's get that community together. We live in the United States of America. We should be one community and let's bridge the gap between each other so that we can find our common ground to connect. But, you know, once you start separating because you look a certain way, what about the people who don't? And how many more people now today look different than they did 30 years ago? My dad said if his grandfather saw the Gordons now, he would be he wouldn't recognize them because of their light skin. Yeah, yeah. But he said they're no less Gordons than than they were. So all that to say is I I do think that there should be peace and reconciliation, but I think it starts with self, not necessarily with a community that you have to identify with. Hmm. So, so I have so many thoughts and the first one is this is everything you've said is both of you said is just powerful for me and the, the 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 first thought i have is i really wish we could learn that we're actually all members of multiple communities yeah. like the three three of us might be members of different racial communities but the three of us are also film lovers we've also all acted we've also all directed we've also yeah. and so and so like we're all in i'm in a community with people who've done martial arts i have a son who's adopted i'm in a community with people who have adopted kids you know what i mean like the, we, we're actually members of all these different communities not just one that's a, the first thought i had the, the second thought it's it's funny that i remember years ago um when i was reading one of the biographies of gandhi and there's the great gandhi quote uh which is that in order for someone to ride on your back, you must first bend over. Mm. Is that that part of that? If you stand up straight and are yourself, it makes it harder for other people to abuse you. And that one of the things I know that Gandhi said, and it's so interesting to me that it, it seems to coincide with some of so many things that Malcolm X says, is that he was very insistent that everybody who marched with him had their house in order. Like they yeah. couldn't litter in the march. They had to, nobody could get drunk. Nobody could commit crimes. They had to be, because he said, anything we do, the British will use to condemn us. Therefore, we must be perfect. And so the keep your community in order, how we have to unite with ourselves, like, and and, and this goes sort of to the last thought, is there's um, in Aikido, that you you learn a bunch of kind of Japanese phrases that are important pieces of philosophy. And one of the phrases that you would have to memorize for like your second belt test would be masagatsu agatsu, which means true victory is victory over oneself. Mm. And I think about that all the time. And where I have come to with it, the reality is you can only change yourself. There is yeah. no, I cannot change, John, I cannot change, I can talk to you. Yeah, I can't change you. I can't insist that, you know, people who I strongly disagree with stop being assholes. I can't do that. I can only change how I exist within the world. Right. And so that, you know, advice of how are we going to, we can't unite with you until we unite with us. And I like Andre, what you said is that it goes down to the individual at a certain point, you know, and then we cut to a jet coming into frame and we hear that Malcolm X is going to Mecca. And, and by the way, from reading the book, this is not really stressed here. Malcolm X was totally broke. He had no money. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It, and he went to Mecca. He didn't say, hey, I'm Malcolm X. I'm going to Mecca. He borrowed the money from his sister. 
And he flew there with no one. Nobody knew who he was when he first showed up. And he almost didn't get into Mecca until he finally did contact someone who did know who he was. And then the world kind of opened up to him. Hmm. But yeah, he was totally broke at this time. I also think several things about this. The first thing is that, you know, we talked about this movie going over budget. It was controlled by a bond company. The bond company did not want Spike Lee to go to the Middle East. Wow. They said, absolutely not. You can't do it. They said, they suggested, why don't you film, uh, you know, Saudi Arabia on the New Jersey shore in the middle of January? Mm -hmm. That was their plan. And Spike said, he absolutely refused. He said, we're going. And he continually said, we are making this film by any means necessary. All the stuff that is in Cairo, uh, that is really Denzel. Denzel never went to Mecca. That was second unit. It is the first time in history that Mecca opened itself up to a film crew. Wow. And I think the footage there is astounding. Yeah, really is. I also think the one place this movie drags is I didn't need all the stuff with the pyramids. And it just kind of... the two kids and the... The two kids, yeah. Yeah. I guess it was... I think this was Spike's kind of allusion to Lawrence of Arabia. um, Mm, Totally. Oh, you're... And then, and then, obviously, he's trying to highlight the CIA following him, which mm-hmm. was a big deal. But yeah, I mean, and I, I think if there's a criticism for the movie, it is that Steve. I think that's a fair point. Is that the CIA thing only starts popping up once he goes out on his own? But they had been yeah. monitoring him for a long time. Oh, so sure. Spike, I think you know, once again, trying to tell this expansive story in just three hours is really almost impossible. So some things are going to get short shrift. And certainly the following of Malcolm X by the CIA and the government got a lot of short shrift. You got the point, but it could have been handled with a lot more knowledge and a lot more uh, background on it, for sure. And we begin to hear this letter from Malcolm to Betty. Mm -hmm. And it's beautifully done because we hear Denzel's voice and then it intercuts with Betty reading the letter to the congregation of his temple. Today I arrived in Arabia. I have never never witnessed witnessed such sincere hospitality hospitality and true brotherhood as practiced here in the ancient home of Abraham, Muhammad, and the great prophets of the scripture. And the footage of Mecca, I mean, it's it's just astounding. And anytime you're watching Denzel, it's actually in Cairo. And anytime you're watching those wide shots, that's actually in Mecca. And we see as he's doing these rituals that there are people of all different ethnicities with him. Now you may be shocked by these words, but I have eaten from the same plate, drunk from the same glass, and prayed to the same God with fellow Muslims whose eyes were blue, whose hair was blonde, and whose skin was the whitest of white. Uh, This is a transformative moment for him, you know? Yeah, and I want to say this real quick. The acting here from Denzel's voice is incredible as well. Like if you compare the stages of Denzel's performance throughout this movie, you really could spend hours like just really dissecting what he does. And in this thing, first of all, Steve, you're absolutely right. Spike going to a voiceover here is brilliant. It's a great way to do the montage. You know, he's been kind of doing voiceover throughout the film, but really here you get the letter and you see the transfer and it ends with that moment with Malcolm praying, which is so powerful from Denzel. But the way his voice is slower here, it's deeper, it's more settled, it's more foundational because he is finding his true power in going to the pure source of uh, his Muslim faith. 
And that is what you hear when he's doing the voiceover. It's a more settled Malcolm. It's a calmer Malcolm. And it's not a Malcolm that's going to, you know, start unleashing a bunch of speeches like he did when he was talking for the nation of Islam. It's a different Malcolm. And I love what Denzel does here with his voice to show that, that he's older and more settled. It's amazing. And the the thing to me is I think about the distance this guy's gone Mm -hmm. from the guy on the streets who who he describes himself as an animal and would have killed anybody. You know what I mean? Like was, was heading in that direction. And then what transformed him in prison, part of what transformed him was, I believe the idea of the white devil and that reading that dictionary and that framed the world for him. And that saved him in this way, even though of course I don't agree with part of that thing. And to go from there to be absolutely certain of that version of reality to eat from the same plate and pray to the same God with a white person and feel true brotherhood. That's a, an incredible distance. Martin Luther King Jr. He didn't travel that kind of a distance. That's not being any disrespect, yeah. but you know, his dad was a preacher and he was a preacher, you know, but you could argue that he took black people farther than Malcolm did. You could. Argue, I, so, so his, his distance was longer in, sure. in the long run. Right. Yeah. But it's well, fair point. We, yeah. We, and we could talk about, them. I mean, clearly we could talk another 10 episodes about them, but <laughs> um, by the way, uh, some of the, the, in Egypt, they had scenes where, you know, they're the heading towards the pyramids and stuff and there's a whole bunch of extras. And so they had to put them in period costumes. And so the costume people are there and they gave them a little tag for each person's clothes and they put their clothes in this room. And there was some, mix up with the tags and so nobody could find their clothes and there was essentially a riot of people fighting like no oh, no that's my shirt no that's those are my pants <laughs> trying to get their clothes back in the past i've made sweeping indictments of all white people and these generalizations have caused injuries to some white folks who did, who not, did not deserve, deserve them. because of the spiritual rebirth which i was blessed to undergo as a result of my pilgrimage to the holy city of mecca I no longer subscribe to sweeping indictments of one race. That's all I'm saying, folks. That is all I'm saying. But you know what? That is true growth and maturity. To say that out loud and acknowledge it, yeah. people need to give Malcolm X credit for that. They, Like you said earlier, John, they yeah. just focus on uh, the, the, the quarter one of his game yeah. and not quarter four. And to his point, you should be able to say that point of view right now without being a racist, a sellout, or an Uncle Tom. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. My my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. People people say that people focus on the first half just because for their own narratives to push their own points of views. But Malcolm changed and progressed so much and it was authentic. And that's what really is powerful yep. about it. Yeah. Yeah. In all honesty and sincerity. It, it can, can be stated, stated that I wish that I nothing, wish but, freedom, nothing but, freedom, but freedom, justice, justice and, equality. and equality. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for all people. So I have an odd thing to say, which is that he's he's come this incredible journey. And the key to him now is it's through his through Islam, through his prayer, through this spiritual connection with this religion that he realizes that he is brothers with this other people who share that same spiritual connection to the religion. But I believe the true practice of Islam can remove the cancer of racism from the hearts and the souls of all Americans. And he describes that there are two moments of truth where a blinding light came to him. One is Elijah Muhammad in the prison, and one is this moment. 
And here's the thing that I think is he still had farther to go because mm-hmm. he just widened the separation. Now he went, if only everybody could be a Muslim, right. then we could all be brothers. Instead of going, we are all brothers. Yeah. And it's, and it's you know, obviously, it's not like people haven't used the religion of Islam, not all people, but to separate people out. Like, in pretty much all religions, some people within those religions have used them to separate people out instead of, oh, we're all brothers or brothers and sisters. Yeah. To say that, you know, if you don't believe this, like we believe this, then you are somehow not really about change or about, or, or, or you're not godlike, I guess, is the, is the term I would use. And yeah. All religions have members of people who want to have it orthodox, for lack of a better term, uh, and yeah. only this, you know. And, and people who don't believe will say, because you believe, you are somehow tricked or or yeah. you are somehow naive. Uh, so within each sect of people, mm-hmm. there is that generalized, there are they're, they're always a few yeah. um, that are usually the loud minority. Well, and it's like, I mean, both of you, I think, John, I know, and Andre, I think you too are obviously more religious than me, but you're both my brothers. You know what I mean? Like, that's, and and in particular, because I believe we're all on the same journey that Malcolm X is on towards something better. And the fact that we're coming out of it, at it with different techniques or different ideas or different approaches doesn't mean we're not all trying to get to the same damn place. I shouldn't have said damn because you guys might be religious and not like that. No, I like that. (laughs) I Um, like it. Damn it. By the way, this uh, mosque that Malcolm is praying in all alone is in Cairo. And it is a very famous mosque. It was very hard to empty it to shoot this. Wow. And this is, in fact, a mosque that Malcolm X did pray in when he was in Cairo. Well, that picture, if you, you can find the picture of this scene in any go online or go to any of the books that cover Malcolm, this picture of him praying in that mosque is there. And it's mm. that Spike was perfect in staging it. And I'll be honest with you, this is my favorite moment of the movie in terms of mm-hmm. uh, Denzel's performance. There's so what, much he's speaking Arabic. Yes. There's so much honesty in the prayer. There's so much um, uh, pain, but also understanding and true devotion. And all of the Malcolm, oh, sorry, all of the Denzel, that's my man, or the Denzel stuff that he does, all his tricks are completely gone Mm. in this moment. And you get to see maybe one of the rarest windows into who Denzel Washington really is as a person, with all the walls down. And it's such a beautiful moment because you're also seeing Malcolm with all the walls down, which is great. I totally feel the same way. And I think in terms of filmmaking, what's so great is that we've had all this visual stimulus and all this sound and all these words, and then we pull everything out. So it's very quiet Mm -hmm. and simple at that moment. So all we're focusing on is listening to his prayer. Uh-huh. It's super powerful. And we hear, And if I can die having brought any light, having exposed any meaningful truth that will help destroy this disease, then all the credit is due to Allah, the Lord of all the worlds. And only the mistakes have been mine. Mm. Wow. 
It's beautiful. And he signs it. Sincerely, El Haj Malik El Shabazz, Malcolm X. It must be an amazing thing to find your name. Especially for a guy who, you know, always felt he had nicknames, right? Yeah. Red, you know, later Satan all the stuff. Satan in prison. Satan in prison. Yeah, exactly. To actually, even even uh, Malcolm X, X was symbolizing something in terms of a missing name. So mm-hmm. to actually finally find his name is really powerful moment too. We're on an airplane. This is, by the way, one of the very few soundstage shots is the interior of this airplane. That's a set. It shows. <laughs> it's not the best. Um, and again, we're doing the same thing we did with the letter, which is that we're hearing this, the words from a press conference as he flies home, greets his family. And we can see through the costumes that they've changed. Betty's not wearing a headscarf anymore. The suit is more casual. He's got the beard now. We could see that we've kind of moved on. Malcolm, are you prepared to go to the United Nations at this point and ask that charges be brought against the United States for its treatment of the American Negroes? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yes, as I stated earlier, that um, those nations, African nations, Latin nations, Asian nations, are are very hypocritical when they stand up in the UN and, and denounce the racism practice in South Africa and at the same time say absolutely nothing about the practice of racism here in American society. So we're in probably 1965. Nelson Mandela is already in prison in South Africa. Yeah. He was imprisoned in 1962. And in the autobiography written by Malcolm X, obviously before he was killed, he mentions Nelson Mandela. Wow. Nelson Mandela was reading the autobiography of Malcolm X in prison. (laughs) Wow. Wheels within wheels, man. Yeah, it's just crazy. One of your more controversial remarks sometimes back was a call for black people to get rifles and form rifle clubs. Do you still favor that for self-defense? Well, I don't see why that's controversial. And I couldn't agree more. (laughs) He says, I think that if white people find themselves the victims of the same kind of violence that black people have found themselves victims of here in America, and if the government was either unable or unwilling to do anything about it, uh, I think that it would be intelligence on their part to defend themselves. What a prescient moment in this movie from 1992 when we think about what happened on January 6th. You know, when we saw, yes, there were some people of color, but predominantly white people show up to a Capitol armed, ready to overtake, uh, possibly hang the vice president. They brought gallows because they felt that they were being marginalized. Yeah or um, excluded, or something had been stolen from them. And look at that kind of reaction. Yet, they're always so, some people are always so quick to go and go, see, black people, they're so violent, or people of color are so violent. But the truth is, all races are capable of violence because when they feel that they're being marginalized, or not heard, or um, dismissed, this is the reaction. Well, and I would put it slightly differently, um, although I agree, but Mm. if you listen to the right now today, we think of the gun control folks to be on the left and the pro-Second Amendment folks to be on the right. And the argument of for the Second Amendment and for open carry rules and for having assault rifles and all those things is we can't trust the government. We need to defend ourselves. Right. And, and, And here's a really interesting thing. Do you know 
what state and at what time the first sort of modern gun control laws were passed? No. It is the state of California. It is in 1967 or 68. Mm. The governor who signed it, who pushed for these laws, was Ronald Reagan. And the reason they were passed was in response to the Black Panthers. Yeah, of course. Because they saw a bunch of black people saying we need to defend ourselves and we're going to get we're going to use our avail ourselves of our Second Amendment rights to bear arms. And Ronald Reagan said, no reason why on the street today a citizen should be carrying loaded weapons. That's where the left and the right was 50 years ago. What about the guns, Malcolm? And the flash sounds, which are hitting him because we're at a news conference, start off as flashes. They get heavier and heavier and louder and deeper until they are clearly gunshots. When you tell your people to stop being violent against my people, I'll tell my people to put away their guns. And the response to that from a young actor that is Richard Schiff later on the West Wing says, so you are still an extremist. And I'm like, I don't think he said anything extreme. Well, right. But it's the press, right? Yeah. So... And then at this moment, as the tension is building and the flashes are going off, we hear someone yell, Get your hand out of my pocket! And it's, it's shocking and disturbing. And that is something that will be yelled right at the time of the assassination. Yeah, a little foreshadowing. And then we cut to the most famous image of Malcolm X there is, which is him at the window in black and white, still frame, holding the rifle. And it goes into motion and into color. And what... Spike Lee wanted to do was he said that image is always seen out of context that it makes Malcolm X look like a violent man who's ready to shoot somebody as opposed to in context it's a person who is constantly under threat scared and desperate to protect his family's life Malcolm you one dead red nigga your days on this earth are numbered brother and Betty was listening on the extension in the bedroom I can't imagine. I can't imagine what this life was like. I'm sorry, Betty. Sorry for what? I haven't been the best husband. I've been the best father. Family shouldn't be separated like ours has been. I promise you I'll never make another long trip without you and the children. And then as she tells him to get some sleep, he says, and I I had to put on the subtitles to make sure that I heard this right. He says, under his breath, sort of, the best organization a black man has ever seen. And it is ruined. Huh. What's he saying? Who's he saying this about? Well, I don't know if I... It's a, I, a genuine question. Dre? I, I think he's... By the way, I can just cut out that question if you if we don't feel it goes to a good place. No, I think it's a fair... I mean, we've got to analyze the whole thing. What do you think, Dre? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's funny that he uses the N-word. He uses language that the the conversation comes up quite a bit of blacks using the n-word yes hard r no r a you know we've we've heard (laughs) all the discourse regarding that but um yeah i think what he's saying is very clear that we had something great and the the people who and his mind represent the dregs of the black race ruins something that could be great. I mean, I think they all ruined each other at different points of the journey within the nation. 
there are so many different fingers that could be pointed at, but that's the that's the nature of the human being. We're all flawed, and and but, but the flaws along the journey cost people their life, uh, namely Malcolm X. But that's what I think he's saying. So, but Steve, can I ask you something real quick? Why do you think there's a, a um, you know, I, I, when you said, you know, do you think we should go into this question? When do you think we'll get to the point where we can have these conversations without any fear of observation on how it could or could not be interpreted? Because the truth is just that. And the uh, the social police not allowing talk, but the talk leads to understanding, right? So why do you think we're in this place and when do you think we'll get out of it? Um, I think – uh, it is it's obviously a tough question to answer. I think it is, first of all, a question of degrees, is that there will never, in my opinion, come a time where there aren't some topics that are difficult to discuss and and really easily misunderstood, misinterpreted, or misrepresented. Yeah. There are always going to be people who are going to hang on your words and try to find an error or try to find a way to attack or try to frame it to their needs. That's always going to happen. Mm-hmm. I hope that the degree to which it happens will go down, you know, that, yeah, yeah. that's, that's my hope. And yeah. I, and honestly, I think it is. I, I honestly think it is. I think we are seeing to some degree people going, ah, this is getting a little too far. Yeah. On both sides. Yeah, yes. I agree. I agree on, on all sides, really. I wouldn't just say there's only two sides. Yeah. On all sides the, we're going like, okay, at some point we've got to be able to talk about this stuff openly and freely and respectfully. And that's the thing is I think yeah. people are afraid to say one word about it because <laughs> nowadays it's not. And I and listen, I don't agree. I don't think there's cancel culture. I think there's consequences culture for sure, but I don't think there's cancel culture. And I think nowadays people are afraid to lose their living, to lose their, um, you know, revenue streams. And so they avoid this kind of stuff. You know, look, many of my colleagues don't make any political statements on their social media or come out. On any on any side of any issue, they just talk about movies, right? And I respect that. I'm not built that way, even though at times I wish I was, because it would probably lead to more followers and people not uh, people unsubscribing. But you got to be who you are, you know. And so those people do what they do, and I do what I do. Um, and you wonder when do we get to the point where we are okay to talk about all this stuff, and nobody loses followers, nobody gets upset. People actually appreciate the conversation. I think that's what you hope for. And maybe down the road, as because this is such a course correction we've been going through. Um, yeah. And and rightfully, and an overdue one, to be fair, in our society. Yeah. We've got to now, the pendulum's got to swing back to the middle so we can now actually start having yeah. conversations, as Malcolm said, that yield results, not push narratives to uh, enrich, in, in, enrich people who need to have the division in order to succeed, in order to make money. I'll say something very honestly, and I, I don't think people would tend to think of me as a, like a cowardly person. No, no. I'm continually afraid of oh, speaking oh. my mind. <laughs> continually. I mean, John, you know, I dislike confrontation. I don't, I, I, I don't I think we get a lot out of, arguments like they don't usually help resolve problems and i yeah. continually see things on twitter frequently from friends of mine who say things that i go uh i don't you know 
And I am very hesitant. I'm actually trying to more often actually speak my opinion. I've seen you weigh in more lately. Yes, I know. I have been. I have been. And 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 it's hard because I don't want trying to figure out how do we come out of this in a good way? Mm. Like, you know, I had a friend, this is one you probably saw, who said something just totally angry about a thing like, why are you yelling at that thing? Like, what is the po- what point are you serving to do that? You know, and it's hard, you know, and trying to figure out in this podcast itself, how do I express myself, I truly express my opinion and not, you know, step into some shit that's going to come back at me, you know? Well, like, here, here's, a, here's an example, um, and maybe I'll put this in and maybe I won't. At the very beginning, we were talking about that the podcast will contain the N-word. Mm-hmm. And those people who know how we make this show is I'm frequently got much of the dialogue of the movie written down and I'm going to say it. And then later I'll cut Denzel in instead of listening to my voice. Um, but to do that, um, I think you guys both said, <laughs> we started, it's like, you're not actually going to say the N word, are you? And I'm like, Oh no, I will never in a <laughs> recording say it. Yeah. But let's say that I had exactly the same set of opinions. I'm exactly the same person. I say exactly the same things, except instead of saying the N word, when I'm reading one of the lines from the movie, I actually use that word. Does that change who I am? I don't think it does. I think. <laughs> I mean, I have no desire to do it. I yeah. don't want to. It's not. It's not, I'm not one of those people who says, "Why can't I use that word?" I don't you fucking ha- yeah. want to use that word. I, um, <laughs> I, but if I'm the same person and I'm merely reading the dialogue from the movie, because, right. like for instance, if if John, if there was a word, we're doing a movie that was about Latinos, and there yeah. was a word that started with SP. Would I? Would you prefer that I called that the S word when I was reading no, the lines of the movie? I don't actually mind. Is the word Spanish. Spicoli? <laughs> <laughs> Is that what you're trying? To, but um, <laughs> no, I, I I wouldn't have a problem with it because uh, to be honest with you, because the N word is I think the N word transcends big. all slurs. Yeah, all slurs. It is the number one slur in my opinion the, because of the connotation yeah. of take of four hundred years. Yeah. Of, you know, slavery and bringing people over to this country and the horrible abuse that we did that not we, me, but like the uh, that this country yeah. did do to black and still systemically doing to large sections of the black community. I, I think to me, that word carries so much more weight. So you may choose to say it and I may choose to be uncomfortable by you saying it. Um, but I would I, I myself personally would never say it in a public way or in a show like i might you know like if i'm rapping along to kanye or something i might let it slip when i'm driving or something but i certainly wouldn't say it you know and so for me i would always have that rule for myself um but it doesn't change who you are as a person but well that's the you know but it does offer a reaction uh, or or people opportunity to react to you for you and again to be real clear I have yeah. no desire to say it. Yeah, right, that's of not of the point I'm making. What the, the, the point I'm mm-hmm. actually trying to make is that what's happened today is we're frequently judged by how we say a thing, or or way people the way people might interpret the thing we say rather than who we are. Yeah, or and, a piece it, it was, of what you say. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. They parse it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, like, and, and one of the things I wasn't sure where to say this, but what I think I, I've been thinking a lot about Malcolm X, obviously, is that we tend to judge people by where they've been, not by where they are or where they're going. Is that if I were to say sum up Malcolm X by how he was in Harlem dealing drugs, that's not a good guy. 
if I were to judge Malcolm X by the guy who said all white people are devils, I have real problems with that guy. But that's not who he was in 1965. And that's not where he was going. Yeah. Where he was, that's where we, yeah, yes, we could talk about people's past. You know, they put out some tweet eight years ago that was off color in some way. Yeah, we could talk about that. But the question is, where are they? And where are they going? That's more important. Yeah, agreed. And the reason, Steve, why I just wanted to clarify, the reason why I don't weigh in politically on social media is because when you text somebody something or you write some an email, tone is not always taken into consideration. Oh, yeah. And I feel like if I can have a discussion with somebody, you know, and they can hear my voice and see my eyes or at least feel the inflection of my intonations, then my ideals can become more clear as opposed to a screen grab of a section of time to be used in the way that people may say fit. Yep. I totally agree. So uh, it's the middle of the night. Malcolm hears something. He sits up. He pulls out his gun, wakes up Betty. And then a Molotov cocktail goes through the window. The choice to intercut this with the burning of his family house when he was a kid, which was in the script, by the way, that was the intention from the very beginning, is so fucking powerful. Call the fire department, please! Somebody call the fire department! I'm a man! I mean, I can't imagine this, your childhood coming back to you as a father. Um, I can't imagine, yeah. And it was set up so nicely, not nicely, because that's a terrible moment, from a director's standpoint, just that parallel of you recall the father. You, you just, you're, you're recalling that all that pain. And it almost, it, for some, it may even justify all of the things that he had become. And it reminds you of like, oh, this was his bedrock. This was his foundation, this loss. And, and it may even in some way, okay, I understand a little bit why he is or was or became certain ways. Absolutely. And we're outside in the aftermath and he's being interviewed by a reporter, which is Michael Imperioli. Yeah. Um, so great scene. And he's, and what I love too, we've seen how strong Denzel is. He's shook in this scene, you know, cause it's scary. He says some type of bomb, Molotov cocktail bomb was thrown against the back of the house. One was thrown on the side of the house from what I can tell. It bounced up against the window, and that's what woke my daughter up. And had it gone inside the window, my two-year-old, my four-year-old, and my six-year-old daughter would have been... I'm just telling you, had that happened, I'd have taken my rifle, I'd have gone after anyone in sight. I mean, that's a father, man. Like, that's just... Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I can't imagine this. And then you see him get his emotions under control. They ask, do you think this was just a warning or an attempt on your life? Which is a stupid fucking question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he says, This was a definite attempt by the nation of Islam upon the strict orders of Mr. Elijah Muhammad. And they cut to Baines, who says, Well, we feel it's a publicity stunt on the part of Malcolm X, but we hope it isn't a case of, well, if he can't keep the house, we won't get it either. Because the house he was living in was owned by the nation of Islam. Which is crazy that he was still living in a house owned yeah. by the nation of Islam as he was setting up a foundation that was to be uh, going against the nation of Islam. Kind of crazy. Well, and this is the thing. I'm not lying. He was totally broke. Yeah. He had yeah. no money. 
So how did how uh, did they allow this? Why didn't they kick him out of the house? What was was it a legal thing? Did they actually think they were going to bring him I don't back know the answer. Fold? It's fascinating. I don't know the answer. Yeah. It's not that long, by the way. The, this time is at this. No, point. it isn't because they. Um, by the way, so in Muhammad Speaks, which is the Nation of Islam's newspaper, uh, there were qu- some. Of, he, these are some of the quotes that were in this at, in the newspaper at the time. Such a man as Malcolm is worthy of death. And how about this one? Hypocrites like Malcolm should have their heads cut off. Mm-hmm. Now, those were written by the editor of Muhammad Speaks, who was a, Louis, a man named Louis X. Louis X later got rid of his ex, and that man is Louis Farrakhan. Yeah. He, that's who wrote those lines. Not. Wow. Not Matt X. It was Louis X. Yeah. Um, Louis Farrakhan. Yeah. And I think, if I remember correctly, Farrakhan was like, a big fan of Malcolm's and then turned on him as soon as the nation of Islam turned on him and became yeah. ardently against him and wanted to lead the nation of Islam. He had his own desires to lead the nation after um, uh, the honorable Elijah Muhammad passed on. Yeah. Well, and this is why I, I can hold two thoughts in my head. One is the nation of Islam and Elijah Muhammad saved Malcolm X's life and taught him great things. Sure. And, this is some real scary, dangerous stuff. And by the way, Malcolm is not the only minister formerly of the Nation of Islam to be killed, we believe, by the nation. Mm. There are other ones before he was assassinated. Wow. And right after witnessing this attack, we jump right into a hard cut into a bunch of guys, including Giancarlo Esposito, loading their weapons and getting ready for the assassination. <laughs> What a scene with them and the music that's playing there is yeah. such dread. And there is such a, um, I don't know what to say, there's such a scary determination in all their faces. Uh, there's no like hesitation. It's just a blank anger and meanness and evilness almost that they're going to do this thing. Uh, and I wonder if that's great direction from Spike saying, "Be look, have the most evil look on your face you can have, but don't overdo it and strip away the uh, um, too much emotion. Just let that be your essence. And as you're panning around that table, you really do feel that even from bugging out, you know, pretty incredible. Well, th- that's what I was going to say is like we've seen Giancarlo Esposito in these huge, like vibrant, intense complicated extroverted roles and now we see this other side of him that we're going to see years and years later in uh breaking bad you know that the, yeah. he's got this dark intensity that he can bring in uh and the other thing i was thinking about you know we talked about when we did do the right thing just the sense of dread yeah. throughout the yeah. whole film i actually don't feel that as much in malcolm x hmm. until oh. i get here until yeah. i get here and when i get here the dread is just massive I, I felt it, dude. I, I felt it. I felt it when I turned the movie on, <laughs> because you know, you know, you know, Titanic sinks. Uh, right. But regarding this scene, I also thought directorially a really interesting choice, and this is something that you know we see a lot more of now because I think Spike, in some ways, is a pioneer in that. The pace of the edits juxtaposing the tempo of the music. And the essence of the actors, it's all really interesting choices that make this scene like the um, calm before the storm, but the warning label on the pack of cigarettes. 
like oh that's good and the one thing you hear the one the only words you hear spoken quietly in the scene are assalamu alaikum my brothers so we know where this is coming from so is it you think ask you steve as a filmmaker is this spike saying it was the black muslims yes okay I, I think there, I think there's no question that's what Spike is saying. Okay. And I think since then, there's at least more complexity. Yes. In, in, in what happened at the, at the least. Uh, Malcolm checks into the New York Hilton, obviously trying to get some space. You can see again, the, the, the advances in the wardrobe. Now he's wearing like a sweater. And I mean, who, which I, I go like, man, the Malcolm who was marching uh, to the police station. I don't think that guy was going to wear a sweater. You know what I mean? Right. And he calls up brother Earl and Earl is concerned about security. He wants to send people down to the hotel. He wants to frisk people coming into the meetings. No, 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 no. I don't, I don't want to, I don't want anybody frisked. We have to change our way of thinking, brother. We have to make people feel comfortable. If I can't be safe around my own kind, who can I be safe around? I trust that Allah will protect me. Well, believing in Allah is one thing, but I also believe in being armed. Which is ironically what Malcolm said, right? Yeah. Do you guys feel like he knows at that point, too? You know, he's uh, he's getting taken out? So this is one of the weird questions. There are a lot of people... So so Spike and the crew were interviewing people that knew Malcolm at this yeah. time, a lot of people, and a lot of the people they talked to said they thought that Malcolm knew that this was going to happen. Wow. Yeah. I get the feeling from this performance that he's made peace with it, that he's scared. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's very similar to a lot of the um, uh, crucifixion of Jesus Christ movies that not wanting it to happen he like he he's accepted it and he and he almost like he feels like it's for the greater good like he's sacrificing himself for the cause and he, he even in the way that he embraces and, and hugs um some of his fellow scene partners it's like everything he's doing is with a sense of finality yeah and it's it's comparable to what uh martin luther king jr with his last speech when he yes said, i might not get to the mountaintop with you but you know, in almost almost like that Moses thing, I can't go into the promised land uh, knowing. Like he, in, in, it's interesting to watch this movie, and then you think of that speech of Martin Luther King Jr. because it's two of the most well known civil rights leaders from the 1960s having a bit of fatalism about the situation, and then boom, their fatalism actually uh, comes true. You know, and so. In this scene, you see it, and, and and it's also well done for a filmmaker because you build up the sympathy, you build up the tragedy, right? Because you you see how Malcolm, like, oh, if only he'd, if only he'd done this, and, and like you said, uh, Andre, you know the ship is going to sink, but you, but what makes it more moving is if you see what could have been done to prevent it, or what could have been done to stop it, and. When it isn't, it adds more to the tragedy and the effect that lingers with you after the movie's over. I think in particular in the structure, both of the film and obviously of the reality, Mm. part of it is where Malcolm, the person he had become just recently. I mean, of course, an assassination is a terrible act of violence, but the way we would have felt had it been a decade earlier or even three or four years earlier you know, when he was saying the chickens coming home to roost about JFK, that's a different guy that that's at this moment. 
Yeah. And the fact that he's assassinated at the moment he's really starting to open up to the world and change his way of looking at things, that's truly tragic. Yeah. I also like there's one moment where Brother Earl on the phone says, Assalamu alaikum, you know, he's saying the traditional goodbye, and Malcolm says, No, peace be unto you, Earl. Peace be unto you. That to me is a goodbye. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. And then, as we've had from the beginning of the film, these gunshots you know and at the beginning of the film they kind of had one meaning i think but now we're feeling the I, I think they build up on each other now we hear this huge huge gunshot and that takes us right into the song shotgun and we're at a dance it's such an odd moment because it's so filled with tension but it also reminds me of like roseland at the very beginning of the film and mm. the dance is there and this is where the event is going to be. And this is the assassins casing the joint. I've never been able to listen to shotgun since this movie without thinking of this moment. Wow. It's just so intrinsically connected, you know, with the, the gunshots. And then, cause it's the way it starts, you know, it's just such a loud right. start mm-hmm. to match the shotgun sounds. It just is, uh, it just makes sense. Well, and what's the first weapon that Malcolm X gets hit with is a shotgun. Yeah. It's a shotgun. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, a little on the nose from Spike. A little on the nose. Yeah. And, and then we see there are uh, some men at a hotel desk asking if Malcolm X is registered there. And we feel the things coming at us. Malcolm is sitting there and we have this amazing shot. It's a 360 spin around his face. And Spike's intention with this was just to show the internal turmoil. Yeah. And the, the phone is ringing. And one of the things they did is, and I, I've totally done exactly this thing, which is that phone rings are actually fairly far apart and they're too far apart. And so they cut out the air between them. So mm-hmm. the rings are coming faster than they actually normally do because that adds to the tension. You hear me and you hear me well. You come anywhere near my family and I will kill you. Betty, Betty you will hear Betty, it's me. It's Malcolm. Which means, who knows? This is now years that Betty has been getting threats. Years. And and the point at which someone has to be to threaten a mother and her children. Right. You know? Right. Well, that happens all the time. You know, uh, uh, sadly, still happening these days, depending on the person and depending on the situation. We see people getting threatened uh, with their children right next to them. Uh, sometimes we see these rallies with people on two opposing sides of an issue and children that are on both sides, which is really unsettling and scary. My guess is right at this moment, it is happening on Twitter. Uh, oh, sure. Oh, God, you know? yes, please. And I would just say, what the fuck is wrong with you people like that would do that? Like, uh, anyway, <laughs> um, moving on. Can we come to the meeting tomorrow? No, I don't think so. Which, by the way, Malcolm did tell them to come to the meeting at which mm. he was killed, okay. which to me is evidence that he didn't think that it was going to happen, at least not that day. Right. Mm. You know, because why would you make sure that your family is sitting in the front row, <laughs> which they were? I'm going to stop saying that it's the nation of Islam that's behind this. I know what they can do and I know what they can't do. I trained them. Some of the things that have been happening lately, I just. He doesn't finish that sentence. And then he says, they're not working alone. And getting a lot of help. Who's helping them? Well, first well, of all, is yeah. is someone helping them? And if so, who? Yeah, I mean, that whole period in our country's history is really muddy. Really muddy. You know, and I mean, obviously, 
we see the FBI, I think in this moment, or we saw the FBI already, you know, making the comment that, oh, he's better than, uh, better than Martin, or this guy's a saint compared to Martin. So clearly the FBI, under Hoover, the corrupt Hoover, in many ways, had power, had strong power uh, to be able to uh, go after people, have files on people, intimidate people, scare people. And, and we've, how can I say this? We've launched coups in other countries. We've launched wars, fabricated wars in order to, uh, for our political benefit as a, as a nation. So we've done that. And there's much documented evidence of us doing that across the world for decades, <coughs> probably for centuries. And so it, it wouldn't be shocking to have the FBI or CIA or someone else, some other organization in a shadowy way involved in carrying out or assisting in the assassinations of both Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. It wouldn't be so, and, and it would be smart to use the idea that it was the black Muslims because then, you know, it just becomes a black versus black situation and no one points the finger at the white establishment, you know, and so. Those are those things. And even with Malcolm, I'm oh, sorry, even with Martin, you know, some, how does he have access to the roof? How does he have access to that rifle? How does he know when Martin's going to be like, it's just so much about that. There's like, come on. So it, to me, I think Spike was saying the black Muslims were involved, but in this moment, having Malcolm say this, he's saying, he's insinuating that the FBI, CIA, or some governmental institution was f- helping this happen. Well, and what we see is we see a, a bug on a lampshade. Mm-hmm. And we yeah. see the guys listening to the tapes, and this is where they have that line that you mentioned. You know, yeah. compared to King, this guy's a monk, uh, which I think is kind of fascinating in the way we perceive these two figures. And you know who one of the guys who's listening in is, which I didn't. No, John Sales. Oh, that's who, that's who says oh. compared to King, this guy's a monk. Really? Wow. Yeah, I think. I mean, the FBI infiltrating some of these organizations and messing around with them and trying to destroy them from within. It's pretty well documented. I mean, a couple of years later, that's what they're doing to the black Panthers. Yep. You know, is trying to make them look like something that they're not. And there's murders within the black Panthers and there's, yeah. It's, and the thing is, I don't know. I don't You know, you're what you said, John, I think is the best way to put it. It's muddy. Like yeah, it's what muddy. exactly yeah. was going on, which is yeah. what they want. That way you can never really assign blame to anybody. I agree with you, John. I think it's definitely muddy. I mean, it's clear, just based on historical evidence, that the Nation of Islam, they were done with Malcolm X. They wanted him out the picture. There, there There were threats happening. So it's difficult to disconnect an actual repeated threat from the end result of violence. But it's also historically been documented that he is being monitored by the government. He, as you said, uh, John, there was extreme corruption and a history uh, of, of going after figures that seemed like they'd be destabilizing to the Republic is the term that is often used. And, and I think that it's very easy to come to the conclusion based on everything that happened that, they did have help. I don't think they could have done that on their own. You know, he, he, let's just say, from a financial standpoint, uh, you know, where, where, and how are they getting the level of weaponry? I, I don't know exactly. I, I know that they're, they're simple weapons were used, but it just seems like 
the the rise that they had in addition to you know being funded by white supremacists that was a really fascinating fact if white supremacists helped give money to the nation of islam it is not far off to then conclude or you know disseminate that the government would also be in their best interest to, to have people like martin luther king and like malcolm x taken out I think it's completely plausible that that is what happened. So, Andre, have you ever had the experience where you've been working on a sequence for a while and in post, and then you take a piece of music and you lay the piece of music in and it just magically works? Absolutely. And, and it's like, uh, you feel like, wow, everything was meant to be here. And you don't often, at least I don't often, shoot something with a particular piece of music in mind. Oftentimes, you know, you may have it at the time, especially before now, for Soundstripe and all those things. You'd have it originally scored. But um, right. to have a piece of music just lay in and work, man, that's that's butter. So so it is, what, and people have heard me say it before, it's one of my favorite film school terms, which is psychoacoustic coincidence <laughs> is, is the name for this. And apparently in this sequence of Malcolm heading towards the venue where he will give his final speech... They had cut the whole sequence, and then they took Sam Cooke's Change is Gonna Come, they put it on top of it, and they did not change a frame. I was born by the river in a little tent. And I will say this. I had never heard that song before I saw the movie. And when I saw the movie and that song, oh, my God, it immediately became one of my favorite songs ever because of that sequence in the film and it's so well done and St i mean and steven there's so much um menace and tragic overtones and sadness rolling through that whole thing that whole sequence there i mean you see the car pull up next to malcolm it looks like the guys that are going to kill him are fuzzily to his side or slightly out of focus to his side in the car um, you sense the, the, the close-ups on him, you know, all of it just works so well. And then the classic Spike Lee, where he feels like he's floating yeah. uh, until that woman stops him and has that conversation with him. And that ending is just, the ending to the back and forth is just so perfect. <laughs> so, so a couple things. First of all, I was a huge, huge Sam Cooke fan mm. all through high school. Cause I loved, I loved oldies and stuff like that. And this song is so different because all of his other songs are just like romantic yes. and lovely mm -hmm. and, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. you know, popular. And this song, and, and, and I didn't know they were friends yeah. until One Night oh. in Miami. I had no idea. The, the other thing, that shot that you mentioned of the out of focus guy yeah. looking over, total accident. That <laughs> is just an extra. Get out of here. Who's driving one of the cars and he looked over to Denzel's car to make sure he was in the right position. Shut up. That's all wow. it is. But it looks so menacing, right? It does. Wow. Yeah, it looks like it's one of the guys coming to kill him. Oh, it wow. totally feels that way. What'd you call this? Psycho auditory? What? What'd you call it? Psychoacoustic coincidence. Yeah, this is what a great example of it. Oh, my God. Yeah. I'm telling you, I te I'm telling you, John, I know Andre's had the experience. It's the weirdest thing in the world you're in editing and you just put a song on and all the beats are like hitting right yes. at the perfect moments. And you're like, it, it feels like magic, <laughs> you know? I mean, this is why there's the whole listen to Dark Side of the Moon while watching oh, yeah. uh, Wizard of Oz. That's the prime example of it's just an accident. 
but it just happens to fit perfectly. And one of the things, the other thing that happens is the assassins are moving into the venue and this little girl drops her little black doll and the person that picks it up so sweetly, Giancarlo Esposito. And he says, and she said, we hear, what do you say to the nice man? And she says, thank you. And he says, you're very welcome. My beautiful sister with this big smile. Yeah. And then she moves away. Yeah. Yeah. And the smile disappears. Yeah. It's fucking chilling. Yeah. You know, that's the word for it, chilling. And then, as you said, we come to the end, and this older woman so sweetly says, Don't you pay them folks no, never mind. You just keep right on doing what you doing. And there's this great feeling of, yeah, warmth and connection and community. And then she says, <laughs> I'll pray for you, son. Oh, thank you. Jesus will protect you. Oh, <laughs> just such a perfect ending because you're right. It's that last gasp of believing as an audience that there's a way out of this. It's so brilliant for Spike to end it like that in that whole, cause you're caught up in the song and it's so perfect. And by the way, this is Sam wrote this song because um, like, as you see in the movie, one night in Miami, yeah. the black community was rejecting him and calling him essentially an uncle Tom and saying he was making white music, um, safe white music with his oldie stuff. And this was his way of like kind of pushing back on that and creating, and you know what? It motivated him to create a masterpiece of a song yeah. for sure. That's heartbreaking to listen to. And Aretha Franklin does a great version of it as well. But like when, when you're seeing this moment and the way it ends, it's giving you that little hope, that glimmer that he just crushes when she goes, Jesus will be, will take care. And <laughs> his, his look of like, Oh God damn it. <laughs> like just the look of like, oh man, I thought I was out, but there's no way out now. There's no stopping. This is, this is, there's no, that was the last stop on the train. There's no stop in the train now. It was well, crazy. and I even wonder like, does she actually know who he is? No, no. She has no idea that it's Malcolm. She thinks he's someone else. Yeah. I think she like knows that he's like, has seen his face. Yeah. Yeah. But then thinks that he's someone else. And then we're backstage getting ready. And man, Malcolm is shook. He's off. He's. Yeah, he's snapping at people. He's you know put he's pushing Brother Earl in ways that aren't necessarily nice. Malcolm, what's wrong? It's a time for martyrs now. Where I feel I shouldn't go out there today. Man, this is where I feel like he knows. But then the next thing he says is, "My wife out there and the children," and he says, "Down front as always." Yeah. Yes. I mean, if he knew, why doesn't he cancel? I think he knows, but I think he wants it not to be true. And there's this battle in between himself that, hey, you know what? If my kids and my family were out there, they wouldn't go that far. Or, or if the right. kids and family are out there, maybe this won't happen. But in his heart, he knows, like, this is, it's inevitable. And I, I think he's thinking that they won't do it if they see the family, if they see the kids as a possibility. I, I, I don't really know. I wasn't there. But um, yeah. um, maybe it was. Uh, uh, but, you know, it's one of those things where I just feel like he's battling, you know, back and forth. So movie sets don't necessarily reflect the tone of the movie that they're making. So there are there are comedy movie sets that are miserable. There are <laughs> yeah. violent horror movie sets where people are just having a ball. Apparently on this movie, on Malcolm X, it was a really fun set. People were having a lot of fun throughout the entire shoot until they got here. Yeah. 
And when they got here, it was like the cloud descended, like the pain, like the dread, the heaviness came. And it was hard to shoot. Call up the Reverend. See if he can make it down here. And then Malcolm hugs him. And this is where I go, yeah, he knows. Like when he hugs him, cops come up the stairs. And all this is really well documented, by the way. Yeah. And a woman that he had scolded before comes in and Malcolm apologizes. He says, I apologize for raising my voice earlier. Very disrespectful. Which I like. I like a lot that he, even in this moment, he gets it under control. Well, we've all been there where yeah. the stress and the pressure makes us snap at people. It's just, it's life. And especially the weight that man is carrying, for God's sakes, that neither of them in that room are even remotely close to understanding the weight he's carrying. Um, and the impending, his impending death that he's possibly now walking into, you know, what that must be like. So, but you're right for him to have the grace to, in that moment to apologize and make things right in a way in that situation. And, and to be fair, these two shouldn't have been fooling around. They should have been handling the business and writing the damn bylaws. But, you know, Malcolm is a little more understanding in the end about it. <laughs> um by the way, uh, and this is just the technical filmmaking stuff, they made 10 suits of this suit that Malcolm gets killed in. Oh, wow. Because, I mean, you got to have it at different stages, and you're going to have to do take two, and you might have to do take three. Good point. Mm-hmm. And without any further ado, I present to you Brother Minister Malcolm, and I pray that you and I will listen, listen, hear, and understand. Thank you. And Malcolm gets up, he walks on the stage, there's applause, he looks at his family, we see the assassins, all of this is drawn out. The applause stops. Assalamu alaikum. And we hear that same thing we heard in the press conference. Get your hand out of my pocket! Get out of my pocket, nigga! And up comes someone with a shotgun, and Malcolm sees it and smiles. And then the other assassins come up and just open fire on I don't know how many times he shot, by the way, but it's a lot. Mm. And there's just chaos. And then we're out front. You know, people are running around. They're trying to grab the assassins. And we see Giancarlo Esposito go down the stairs in like just a crazy falling down the stairs stunt. And it is him. That's what Spike says. That's actually him. And I went and freeze-framed it to look, and I think it is him. That's Mm -hmm. a nuts stunt for an actor to do. Yeah. Because it's out of control. And by the way, this is again, this is what they said in talking about this scene, is that they said the crowd went nuts. Like, they literally went nuts and were picked up Giancarlo Esposito and were beating him. Mm, Like, literally. Wow. Oh, wow as this was happening (laughs) and spike is yelling cut and the ad is yelling cut and they're not stopping wow that means you've directed a really good movie if people are that caught up in it that they are like just you know wailing on a poor giancarlo the other thing that's really interesting to me by the way is that this is spike's one two three four five fifth film i think fifth or sixth film this is the first gunshot actiony thing he'd ever shot Oh, interesting. Yeah, isn't that surprising? Yeah, like we had the violence at the end to do the right thing, but he'd never done guns and right. lots of stunts and stuff like that. And then 
from all of this chaos, the music goes soft, and we're up with Betty, who is weeping over the body, and in come the police slowly <laughs> and just walk around and don't do much. And this, again, is this is exactly what happened. Yeah. The police just kind of wandered in. Yeah. Why would they care? Yep. I mean, I was looking at uh, the details of, of what happened. It says that he was shot at least 15 times, right? Um, in real life. Wow. Spike, I mean, that, it seemed as though in the film he was shot a lot more than that, right? Wouldn't you say it was more than 15 rounds? Yes. Probably, seemed, yeah. Like It seemed like double that. Um, and, and I wonder, is the documentation of it at least 15 um, low-balling low it? Uh, or was it really you know, more accurate as to what Spike did. Yeah. I do not know the answer. We have the body going out in black and white footage in a gurney and then very quickly to a, a doctor and reporters and the announcement. The person you know as Malcolm X is no more. That's such a fucking cold thing to say, man. Yeah. <laughs> just right? shocked by that. Yep. Uh, and I wonder if that's accurate, you know, and, and by the way, I think this is the first time, right, that he goes to black and white. Like, oh no, wait, there's the no, he's done it before, right, right. So at the press conferences, yeah, right. Sorry. So those moments where he goes to black and white are just so brilliant by Spike because it's a way of you know yanking you back into that time. In because most of the because mm -hmm. at that time in 1992, pretty much all, pretty much a lot of the news reports that we saw uh, from those times were black and white because you know not a lot of people had color TVs and stuff like that. So you would see the stuff in black and white and the footage in black and white. So that's you, your mind was conditioned to see things in that frame from that time. You know, nowadays you, you know you see World War II stuff in color. So it's like, but like back then it just kind of was what we were seeing. And so it was just perfect to use it in that moment um, to highlight that it's kind of a news report and also to strip away um, any color there to just have black and white. Just so interesting what he's trying to stress there and then have that moment with the doctor, which was so aloof. It's rough. It is a rough for particularly we're three hours and 10 minutes or so into this movie of this person's life and to have it just go and it's over. His life is over. The person you know is no more. It's just, it's a cold water on the face. There's no warmth. Yeah. There's no sympathy. There's no, there's nothing just like yeah. he's gone. And now back to you with sports. And by the way, Malcolm X was 39 years old yeah. when he was killed. That's it. 39. Can I tell you what I think when I hear stuff like that? He was 39. How old was uh, Martin Luther King? Did I have a dream of what? 33? Something like that. These men changed the world yeah. at such a young age. And that I, it's remarkable. If you look at, you know, we're all older than, than they were. And at the time of their death and at the time of their world altering accomplishments, it just makes you think, how some people really can and are destined to do great things. And the, the question I was going to ask you guys, I don't know if it's an appropriate time or not, but what do you think the world would be like if he did not get shot, if he did not get assassinated? Yeah. Like, what do you think would have happened to the movement? Uh, was it necessary for the way that things have uh, evolved? Because there has been evolution for sure since then till now. For those, for, for him to die, do you how do you think things would have been different? Well, first of all, Martin Luther King died uh, same age, 39 years old when he was assassinated. Both of them were 39 when they were assassinated. So that lets you know Malcolm was older. Yeah. So uh, interesting in the approach there. Because usually it's the younger person. You see a younger person who's more emotionally active or emotional about situations of violence. 
But I, Andre, there's a reason they took these men out. There is, in, in my belief, in my belief, there is a systemic fear of black people achieving power in this country, full power in this country. And I think what they saw, and we're seeing that now, right, with these these critical race theory craziness that they've created out of nowhere, um, the idea of teaching racism in the school and the racist history of this country all of a sudden wants to get, they want to whitewash it, kick it out. Because the last thing they want to do is see legitimacy to the complaints, legitimacy to what uh, to our treatment of African Americans and Black people in this country for centuries. And if you take you take out Malcolm just as he's making that turn, where he is opening the door to more and more people being involved, you take out Martin Luther King just after or just before I think or right after they signed the Civil Rights Package. You take out the leaders so that you so that the movement is scrambled and nobody knows who to follow. And then there's riots that ensue. There's also then, oh, you get to paint black people in this way. Great. We, we use this brush now. They're violent, overreactionary. They're essentially animalistic is what they're trying to infer, the, the establishment, the power establishment. And so by removing these leaders in a way, you cut off this movement at the knees and not let it achieve more power, not let it have, make more inroads into the establishment of our country and have generations come up with the understanding of what we've done. No, we'd rather paint them as reactionaries, paint them as lunatics or paint them as people who are, you know, just kind of uh, trying to destroy the America or, or they hate America, whatever nonsense they come up with uh, for that uh, logic, because it's, it's so stupid. It, you can criticize your family, you can't criticize your country. What the fuck is wrong with you? Like, this is the whole point of America. So all of that, I think, just is all interconnected. They wanted to cut this movement off at the knees heading into the 70s um, because they did, because they saw how much power was growing within that movement and how it was changing white people's points of views about how we've treated black people in this country. And I think the establishment was afraid of that and wanted to erase it. I do believe that. I don't think it's a conspiracy. I'm not trying to be a nut. I'm just saying I, I think that's logical uh, when you're invested in keeping a certain power structure in motion. I, I, I've been, I'm glad, John, that you spoke first because I've been sitting here wrestling with how to answer this question. <laughs> and I don't know that I've come up with anything profound about it. But what I keep going back to is what is the importance of the actual works of a person as they live versus the importance of them as a symbol? Because what happens if Martin Luther King Jr. live and Malcolm X live is they get to go on to do much more work. Yes. You know, they get to go on to meet more people and make more speeches and maybe in both cases grow as humans and learn and interact and, you know, foster more movements. And change and evolve. And change and evolve. Yeah. And that's huge. But then I also go the symbol of these people and their death is also huge. and. And and there's always the possibility that people who stay around a long time, they fade and maybe let later actions of theirs, you know, like, let's say that Martin Luther King did have more affairs and they did come out in his lifetime. And then he maybe then we might look at past things in his life and not actually put them as highly as we do, you know, yeah. like like JFK, I don't think was the greatest of presidents, right? I think as a symbol, he's extremely powerful, mm -hmm. but as an actual president, maybe less so. And if he hadn't been assassinated, we might not be thinking of him in the same way that we are now. Yeah. 
which is a really long way to say that in answer to your question, Andre, I have no idea. <laughs> but, but you know what, Steve? Listening to you and John, one thing I can say is progress, huge, great progress, that Barack Obama was elected twice and he's black, he, yeah. especially on the outside. And crazy to say it, there were no attempts on his life that we know of that right. we saw. So there's huge, there's something to be said about, not, not like, oh, they elected one time, two times that, that, that speaks to the progress of our country. And I do believe that Martin Luther King and Malcolm X had a lot to do with that. And the whole symbol of hope that uh, Obama um, stood upon that platform, I think was bridged from the two men before him. Now, now I mean, this is nothing to do politically. I'm just saying, like, right, right. the fact that we had two, he was elected twice. Like, when he was elected the first time, I remember my family and I thinking, oh man, I wonder how long he'll last before someone tries to take him out. Like, I really thought he was going to get taken out. Me too. And not only did he not, he was reelected. I was like, wow. It was uh, unsettling. And, that, and, you know, that says something in and of itself. But I was, my, my mind went there. But I have to acknowledge that. You know, it happened twice, and uh, I think that that set an example of powerful men. The we talked about the ultimate power. That is the ultimate power on planet Earth is to be the president, and um, I don't think that happens without people like Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. I 100% agree, and I'm going to try to say this in a way that I mean, obviously, people listen to the show know where my politics are, but uh, I'm going to try to say this is a, a not a political statement, but that the Two elections of Barack Obama followed directly by the election of Donald Trump mm. says a lot about what this country is. Yeah. That's, there's a lot of truth in, in both of those movements about our country. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Um, it's all about and, yeah. yeah. And speaking, by the way, of Martin Luther King, here's who we hear from next. And this is this transition that we're going to go into now of really seeing more and more real footage and real people. And Martin Luther King's comment is the assassination of Malcolm X was an unfortunate tragedy. And it reveals that there are still uh, numerous people in our nation who have degenerated to the point of expressing dissent through murder. And uh, we haven't learned to disagree without being violently disagreeable. That's today. I mean, you can lift that soundbite and play it right now. We cannot disagree without burning our cities down and throwing things at each other and fighting and killing each other. It's it's uh, it's still applicable. Or attack capitals. Yeah, I agree. A hundred percent. And now we have the eulogy. And this eulogy was delivered by Ozzie Davis for Malcolm X. They were friends. Obviously, Ozzie Davis, you know, is a works with Spike Lee, and he Spike asked him to re-record his own eulogy, which he did. And during this, we see all sorts of footage of the real world. We see the funeral for Malcolm X. We see the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. We see real photos now of Malcolm X. And by the way, Denzel's performance is so powerful that you know how normally when you see the movie and then you see the pictures of the real person, it can be very jarring. You know, mm -hmm. to see what they actually look like. In this case, it was like not jarring at all. 
you know <laughs> I, I felt like i had been hanging out with that guy for the last three hours <laughs> it is not in the memory of man that this beleaguered unfortunate but nonetheless proud community has found a braver more gallant young champion than this afro-american who lies before us unconquered still and now we see jesse jackson and we see the 68 olympics and the holding up the fist with the black gloves we see willie mays we see the black panthers we see all of this movement that happens to some degree inspired by malcolm x as we hear the eulogy there are those who still consider it their duty as friends of the negro people to tell us to revile him to flee even from the presence of his memory, to save ourselves by writing him out of the history of our turbulent times. I think that's a, a fascinating statement because that's what we've wrestled with, I think, in this whole discussion. Yeah, yeah. Some people are invested. And it's, you know, um, on both sides, yeah, both black and white, there are some people, there are people who are invested in keeping this narrative of Malcolm as this violent revolutionary alive, even though he never... As Malcolm X never shot anybody, stabbed anybody, hung anybody, did anything. He just advocated for self-defense and for uh, self-actualization in the black community, which intimidates people. Um, and so, you know, uh, it's unfortunate, but he was speaking to it. And I love that it's in the eulogy, going right at these people. And I think seeing kind of the world directly after Malcolm's death, seeing the civil rights movement, seeing Martin Luther King and the Black Panthers and all those things. I think that's very predictable in terms of where the film was going to go. Going to Soweto in South Africa, mm -hmm. and now we have this bright, bright color and this very modern feeling is completely unexpected to me. Um, and then we cut to this classroom. And there's a teacher in the classroom, and she says... And so today, May 19th, we celebrate Malcolm X's birthday because he was a great, great Afro-American. Malcolm X is you, all of you. And you are Malcolm X. And the kid jumps up and says... I'm Malcolm X! By the way, that first kid is Denzel Washington's son. <laughs> That's John David Washington? Yeah. Wow! Think, yeah, does he only have one son? I think, yeah, maybe. then that must be him. Wow. What do you think of this choice? Because this is Spike Lee. I mean, this is a filmmaker making a choice. What I do think you think of this? Uh, to me, I love it because I think he earns it. This whole movie earns him going into this moment, which, yeah, could be cheesy, could be seen as kind of out of step with the film. But it's also about him saying the effect of Malcolm, as Andre just pointed out, the effect of Malcolm X or of Martin Luther King Jr., in the black community. And he's trying to, in a sense, with this movie, redeem Malcolm X's image in 1992 um, mm -hmm. as this, you know, violent revolutionary. He's trying to get the mainstream to see and understand who Malcolm X fully was and also his effect in our community and how he is representative of every person in the black community. And I think, or he's representative of the black community, shall I say. And, um, this sequence here is great with I am Malcolm X, I am Malcolm X, I am Malcolm X. It's just trying to say like, hey, we are all Malcolm X in that he wanted us to stand and be proud of being black and have our own agency and our own power in this country. And I, I, I think it's, I understand why people might feel this cheesy, but I think he's earned it to have this moment. 
the whole cheesy factor never even entered my mind as a viewer. I, yeah, I really, I really felt John and Steve that by having children say that line, there, Spike is saying that, hey, this type of change in perspective starts with our kids. It starts with how we raise the next generation. To that we can raise the next generation with some of the ideals that Malcolm X encapsulated and really bring that forward, uh, not only through, um, you know, and, and listen, uh, this is me analyzing as a director, not just through what we say with the line, but he had each kid jump up, like he jumps up. So it's like, we have to stand up strong and be bold and, and really profess uh, those ideals and stand for those ideals. And it starts with how we raise the next generation. I thought it was beautiful. I thought it was great. I thought it was a nice commentary from Spike that was outside of the world of the biopic, outside of the world of the film. I felt like it was like a, don't forget the message, guys. Yes, this was a movie, but you know, sometimes people watch a movie and they just get wrapped up in the movie itself. It's like, don't forget the, 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 the real message of Malcolm X and let's start with this next generation and take it forward. It's funny. I think I probably have the most mixed feelings about it. It definitely, I mean, Spike Lee is a guy who likes to mess with filmmaking conventions, you know, and be more presentational in a way. And I think he's shown tremendous restraint throughout this whole movie. I mean, this movie has been very classic. And so this is the first place where he really is kind of literally kind of speaking to camera. And I'm not entirely sure how I feel about it, but mm. the fact that it sets up the next moment to yeah. me mm -hmm. is what is it, it, it goes beyond film because now we're going to go to the real Nelson Mandela, who is going to speak to our classroom about Malcolm X. And this is the thing is like, he was in prison in 1962. Malcolm X in his autobiography mentions Nelson Mandela, who is still in prison in South Africa before he dies. Nelson Mandela is reading the autobiography in prison and being inspired by it. And, and in this story is a story of a guy who had his great transformation in prison. And Nelson Mandela is reading that while he is in prison. And that we don't even know, even at the time of this film, that he's about to become the president of South Africa at, <laughs> and be there for the end of apartheid. Like that hasn't even happened yet. And this is only a, like a year or two after Mandela gets out of prison. Yeah, I mean, that is so just all of that is so powerful to me. And he turns to the classroom and says, As Brother Malcolm said, we declare our right on this earth to be a man, to be a human being, to be given the rights of a human being, to be respected as a human being in this society, on this earth, in this day, which we intended to bring into existence. Here's the interesting thing. Nelson Mandela refused to say the words by any means necessary. Wow. He said he would not say that because he did not want anything, anything remotely related to encouraging violence to come out of his mouth. And that is the reason that they cut to the actual Malcolm X saying the words. By any means necessary. And I think it's so much more powerful yeah. the way it happens. Yeah. 
Wow. I didn't know that. It's great to know. Yeah. Um, because it does, and it does, it's the better way to end the movie rather than essentially making it a call out to become a revolutionary. You're saying here's Mandela kind of laying the groundwork and giving you the perspective of Malcolm and then Malcolm ending it in his, his own way in his prime of strength. One of the things I didn't say before is that Ernest Dickerson felt huge responsibility as Spike did as everybody working on this. And what, what he said was like that this was the culmination of everything they learned, Mm. everything they learned in film school, everything they learned with the first bunch of films and to take all that craftsmanship and all that knowledge and apply it to this thing that was more important than anything they had ever done. Hmm. So, uh, as we've mentioned many times, this movie's going way over budget. Spike continually says by any means necessary and continually just shoots what he believes is necessary for the film. The uh, The Bond company didn't want him to go to South Africa and film Nelson Mandela either. That seemed like way too expensive. <laughs> um, and he said, no, we have to do this. And then they're in po- they make it to post and the Bond company completely pulls the plug. <sighs> There's zero money. They cannot finish the film. They've got a whole bunch of footage. They're in the middle of the post. And that is where Spike Lee thinks about Malcolm X and thinks about by any means necessary and thinks about Hmm. the African-American community. And he goes out, and I know this is not a person, this is a person we really have problems with these days, but the first phone call is to Bill Cosby. Yeah. And he feels real bad asking, and he says, you know, and Cosby interrupts him and says, how much you need? And the next call is Oprah, and then Prince, and Tracy Chapman, and Magic Johnson, and Michael Jordan. And they all put up with no expectation of getting money back, no expectation that this is an investment. They put up millions of dollars to finish the movie. Hmm. And it reminds me, by the way, John, of... Orson Welles, who said he was going to play Citizen Kane in the tents. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> like the fight, the fight to get your movie out there. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, but but I also think it's, how can I say this? I also think it's a powerful statement at that time of the growing economic power of black celebrities, right? In 1991 or 92, right? You're going to Bill Cosby. Yes, and I know Cosby said, but he had been successful with that show that kind of changed people's perception of the black family from what we'd seen in like Good Times or the Jeffersons in the 70s. There's nothing wrong with those shows, are great shows, to what we see an upwardly mobile black uh, family here in the 1980s, changing the perception here. I think she, he also went to Oprah, but I'm not sure. But certainly all the people you listed here are people who are coming, who've come into power. And benefited from the doors that were opening up with the white establishment accepting more and more black celebrities and athletes and seeing them as uh, uh, powerfully financially because they were appealing to the younger generations. So it was kind of symbolic that he could go to these people who had a lot of money because they had been crossover successes, black and white people coming together and, of course, other people from other races coming together to enjoy their work either either as athletes or entertainers and that speaks volumes to what was happening in our country the change that was happening and spike was able to kind of come in in that moment and to and and benefit from it uh in terms financially for his movie let me tell you guys something i mean some of you may know this but dealing with a bond company when you're making a film (laughs) is 
it, it's it's uh it's really hard it's difficult because you have your vision of what the movie should be to tell the, the story properly and this is probably a great responsibility within spike to tell this story accurately in the way that he probably should tell it required a certain amount of it money and, and resources yeah. and not only do you have the bond company and the studio and you're, de- you're dealing with all these outside entities for a, a bond company to pull the plug i wonder number one i'm not saying because i am not a conspiracy person but it's possible that what if this was <laughs> getting too too close to home they're like hey you know what we can't let this get out yeah. would they have pulled this movie if it was a biopic on i don't know jfk w- why pull it like most of the time especially when insurance is on the line they'll figure out a way to make it happen but they're like to pull it all together and say you're you're out you're done and i i like that spike went to his community his friend who all and all the people that you mentioned who put money in had to fight and claw none of them were just handed their career good you know? point good point andre and i yeah. think that they came together and said we by any means necessary like you said steve we're gonna make sure that this this happens the and by the way as soon as all those people came in to put up their money then warner brothers came out and said had a big press conference and said no 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 we're totally supporting this film of course <laughs> of course we are like that was uh <laughs> <laughs> So the the movie gets finished. Um, Spike Lee requests that he is only interviewed by black journalists. That's awesome. Which, when you think about the questions he got asked on Do the Right Thing, it makes sense. It was also not well received by the film critic community. No, not the predominantly white film critic community. That doesn't sound right. They're all so liberal and open to progressive ideas why would they be upset by being locked out of this movie uh to interview him because he wanted to uplift black voices who were being uh kept out of these positions by these publications uh and um, what have you so no fucking surprise no fucking surprise well and what also isn't really a surprise is all of those critics that he didn't want to be interviewed by gave the film good reviews <laughs> Not great reviews. <laughs> Not great reviews. Like they were solid, and and to me that's just a ridiculous. Like like I don't think this movie can be put in the average category. You could hate the film. Right. I'm I'm more cool with you hating this movie than saying that this is okay. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Martin Scorsese said that Denzel's performance is one of the greatest in American film history, and he is fucking right. Yep. Uh, it was nominated. The only nominations it got was Best Actor for Denzel and Costumes. Uh, Denzel washed, lost to Al Pacino for Scent of a Woman. It's ridiculous. Just ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, Al's to- he's totally good in the movie. I mean, Al's fine in the movie. He's good in the movie. Yes, you're absolutely right. But it's not a transcendent fucking No. This is a transcendent fucking performance. Costumes lost to Bram Stoker's Dracula. Uh, which has good costumes. I can see that maybe, yeah, but no. It, yeah. It, I think this, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't find that to be a particularly memorable movie. It's a weird movie. <laughs> it's a weird movie. Um, uh, this is the year that Unforgiven won for Best Picture, which is a great film. You're not going to get me to say that. I know. That's not correct. <laughs> um, the other nominees for Best Picture, by the way, so you can see the movies that it was not nominated instead of are The Crying Game, A Few Good Men, 
Howard's End, and Son of a Woman. So oh, it was not nominated. Movie, by the way, Just which it was one? Not, not Howard's End is your favorite movie? <laughs> no, no, no. A Few Good Men. A Few Good Men is legitimately oh, <laughs> one of my favorite courtroom drama movies. That that uh, movie for me, Jack Nicholson's moment. I was like, oh, this is what acting is. But however. <laughs> I, I was shaking my head, Steve, when you were going through that list because I feel like Denzel gets ripped off. Like, he should have won for this, okay? He should have won for Hurricane. And and oh, and, 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 he, and it's like, what does a man have to do? And then to win for Training Day, which I don't think is the greatest performance of all his performances. I thought it was very different than him. But Malcolm X, he became Malcolm X. Yeah. Like I, I, as you said, when they cut to 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 the real Malcolm footage, I did not feel like I was taken out, and to not acknowledge that with a win, mm-hmm. I'm rolling my eyes, people. I'm just I'm rolling my eyes over here. I think all the movies that were nominated for Best Picture are good movies. There's not a a crappy movie, you know. Like yeah. Howard's End's a good movie, but I don't think any of them, uh, with the exception of Unforgiven, is at the level of Malcolm X. Yeah, and I don't want to hurt my brother Andre's feelings, but I would totally move a few good men out and put Malcolm X in his slot. I, I, I would too. And I, and I might even move out Howard's End because I, I don't think it's the most memorable of those yeah. films, right? Sen- sensibility is the more memorable. <laughs> it's the more memorable but that also reflects, right, once again, what you mentioned here earlier, Steve, where he said only black journalists could interview him for this film. And that's correct. I think that's 100% correct. The voting establishment, as we've seen it get pilloried for many, many years, was overtly white males and older white males. So what are they going to go for? Howard's End or their boy Jack in A Few Good Men uh, or their boy Al in Scent of a Woman. You know, and they're not going to go for a revolutionary like Malcolm who was trying to change uh, race relations in this country and stuff like that and how they probably had a very limited understanding of who Malcolm X was beyond a reactionary revolutionary who was assassinated. And and so no surprise that they wouldn't come up to be a vote. And that's the thing. I don't want to say this one more time. If people can get mad at me, if they want the, the Academy and the Hollywood isn't as liberal as you think it is people. It's not as progressive as you think it is. It can get quite petty, quite small, quite safe, quite scared. Um, and you see it. And there's numerous numerous examples of it being safe and scared. And Spike Lee's career is yeah. is, is a, a massive example of how they – and Andre's right, Denzel's career. Because essentially Denzel's training day victory is Al Pacino's scent of a woman victory. It's a makeup right. call. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's funny. Like, obviously, the idea of the best picture is that it's the best movie. And how we define that is a complicated thing. But to me, one of the factors that should go in there is importance. And Scent of the of a Woman, which I haven't seen in a long time, but I remember liking. Sure. I don't think that's an important I, movie. I don't think Howard's End is an important movie. I think Malcolm X is an important movie. Yes. You know? We're, it's it's important to be discussing. One more thing I want to go into before we wrap up this 98-hour exploration of Malcolm X, which is uh, The Assassins, oh, yeah. is that there were three people arrested. They were Mujahid Abdul Halim, uh, Norman 3X Butler, and Thomas 15X Johnson, all of whom were convicted. Mm-hmm. Halim c- uh, confessed to the murder. 
but said that the other two guys were innocent. The FBI withheld this evidence. They withheld eyewitness descriptions that did not match Norman 3X Butler and Thomas 15X Johnson. There were undercover cops there at the time of the murder. They had a tip-off that they, he would be murdered, but they did nothing. There was no evidence that tied uh, Norman 3X Butler and Thomas 15X Johnson to the crime at all. Uh, they had credible alibis. Uh, by not just their spouses, but other people. And yet they still spent decades in prison. And only in the last year mm -hmm. was those convictions reversed. Yep. One of the other killers was probably a man named William Bradley, who was a Marine and had been a criminal and was a member of the Nation of Islam. He passed away many years ago, but he was probably one of the other assassins. And what's so crazy about this is there's still shit we don't know about this assassination. Yeah. You know. Talking about was there other people involved in the nation, you know, or how much was the nation involved or the Elijah Muhammad or those other or his son? How much were those? We don't know. There's just a lot not known. I'm sure there's many, 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 many books exploring this that would have more information and more theories about it. We've reached the time where it's final thoughts. Mm. Um, I, 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 I'm kind of at a loss. But the first thing I want to say is. I really want to thank Andre. Andre, you have, with, without you maybe knowing, no one has ever been a guest of eight straight episodes of The Cinephiles yeah. before. The streak! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and what I'm really happy about is that we've managed to have a lot of conversation about a lot of topics that are very, very difficult to talk about between three people of three different races with three different backgrounds who really honestly were able to discuss this. And if nothing else, I will say watching these films and discussing them is one of the great things that great movies can do. And, and Spike Lee has created not simple issues with do the right thing and Malcolm X, not just lessons that you're supposed to take home, but a lot of things to think about. And, because you evolve so long with the character of Malcolm X, I think it gives us the opportunity to evolve our thinking. And I guess, you know, this is my final thoughts is that for me, the point is not that I agree with what the nation of Islam taught him when he was in prison. I obviously do not. Mm -hmm. The point is that I understand why that took him from the terrible place that he was in as Detroit Red and as Satan in prison and transformed him into a better person, despite the fact that I disagree with some of the things that they said. And the bigger thing is that this was a man who continued to evolve and was going to continue to evolve. And if nothing else, I would say this is the journey that we all should be on is not going, hey, I got it all figured out, but going, oh, I have more to learn and to keep learning and to keep growing and to keep listening, even to things that you might disagree with because those are might be the things the most important things that make you a stronger and better and kinder and more compassionate person going forward i guess those are my final thoughts on malcolm x that's great um i i don't know i don't i don't have much i we've talked about it for hours and yeah. this is one of those final thoughts where i don't think i have much to say other than watch the movie and have it let it affect you and let it send you the message that you don't judge a book by its cover and 
that you do work a little harder to really take a person in fully before you make a judgment about that person. Um, and be aware of what message that person is trying to send and think of what you would do in a situation like that. If your people had had hundreds of years of subjugation and abuse and with most of it, not even coming out, not most of it, not even being reported, how would you react and what would you do? And I think the film kind of opens the door to that and reappreciate a classic film that still holds up from Spike Lee over 30, from over 30, from 30 years ago, 30 years ago. Wow. When you aren't in Los Angeles, the thought typically is that what we do is silly. It's frivolous. It's not of real importance and sometimes that's true sometimes we we do things that we that you know hollywood or entertainment could make more of uh than it really is give more weight in this particular instance there's two examples in which i think media and what we're doing in entertainment is important number one the film itself the film itself is important because i think there's a window into the uh, life and surroundings and the environment that is everything from Malcolm X, from his origin to his demise, that we would not see and not understand and not really feel just by reading a book or just by hearing a story. So just in and of itself, the fact that this movie was made, the fact that this movie was made by a Black director, the fact that this Black director created an economy and employed several different people to go on to create other things alongside this movie in addition to this movie all those things cannot be lost on this experience and then you fast forward to now us having a discussion about it shows not only the power of film because it's timeless it's almost like immortality this has not only been 30 years later and we're talking about the movie we're talking about the filmmaker because this all, this all started actually out of Spike Lee's brilliance. And this has morphed even more into the importance of the philosophies of Malcolm X. And then we want, I want to just wrap it up with this here. The three of us having this discussion, having this discourse, this should be a template of what could happen in society. You have a white Jewish guy, a Hispanic dude and a black dude all with you know no one all none of us think the same thing about every issue having discussions never once contentious never once um at, at, you know with a sense of aggra aggravation but in each step of the way at least from my perspective the sincere true willingness to understand hear and learn from another person if we could do more of what's happening right now in this show in these last eight episodes however how long it's been I think we would be in a much better place. No matter how different we think, no matter how opposing our viewpoints may be, discussion is the key to understanding. So I want to thank you guys, not just for having me on, because you know there's plenty of people we could have on, but for creating a form and an example where it's more just a, more than just about filmmaking and about a biopic. It's about learning from people who may look different than you and realizing that we're more the same than we may let on. So thank you for that. 
Thank, thank you. you, Andre. Thank you. And thank you to everyone who's been listening. This is what we think of Malcolm X. I think you obviously, we had lots and lots of thoughts. And we hope that you have lots of thoughts because we would love to hear them on our Facebook page. You can visit us there or follow us on Twitter at, at Cine underscore files at Instagram at Cinephiles podcast. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, where we'd love to see your reviews on YouTube, where we love your comments. Also on Spotify and Stitcher and all the other places you can play podcasts. Please uh, subscribe to us at all of them. Why not? And why not buy or stream Malcolm X at cinephiles.net along with every other movie we've ever done? And why not support the show at patreon.com slash the cinephiles where we put up our shorts? You, We will actually very soon put up a combined, I think, eight hour version of this episode. So you can download it as one solid track and listen to that on patreon.com slash the cinephiles. Um, and if people wanted to find you, Andre, on the internet, how would they go about doing that? You can find me on Instagram at Andre Gordon Official. You could also find me at this place called TikTok at Andre Gordon Official. You could also find me on the Book of Face at Andre Gordon Official. That's Facebook for those of you who heard me backwards. And if you want to find some of my stuff on YouTube, Four Horsemen Studios, we have some really great content out. Search me up on Netflix, on Amazon Amazon Plus, no, Amazon Prime and Disney Plus. I have things across all platforms. Just look up Andre Gordon. Thank you. John, how about you? You can always find me at The Roca Says on Twitter, Instagram, and uh, TikTok, and The Outlaw Nation on Twitch, and my my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash John Roca Says. Come check out the new look and the new shows on the channel there on YouTube and also um, my podcast, my other podcast, the uh, top 10 of the geek buddies that's out there for you all to enjoy as well. And for those of you who have stuck with us from two months ago, when we began this exploration with the life of films <laughs> of Spike Lee through three episodes to do the right thing through four episodes on Malcolm X. Thank you so much for sticking with us. We know these have been some heavy episodes about some serious topics, and we promise that the cinephiles are going to have some fun <laughs> over the, yeah. next, yes. the next few weeks. we got some fun plans coming up, and we cannot wait to see you next week for another great film on The Cinephiles. Mm-hmm.